Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Anything But Typical podcast, and you are in for a treat with the wonderful Vanessa Von Matthews. I have been so fortunate to meet her after I came back to Charlotte five years ago, and um, I think I actually first met you at um, the Most Interesting People in Charlotte event or something like that. I think, if I'm not mistaken, we were at this thing. Um, and so, Vanessa, before we get into your uh, accolades, which are many, and your accomplishments, which are noteworthy, I'm going to ask you this question. And, and so here's the deal. You and your husband, Shedrick, are out, in, uh, out and about pre-COVID or after COVID where you're not... Um, just cooking, walking, and talking, uh, but you're you're in a crowd of other people. Let's just pretend it's your favorite restaurant, and you're you're being seated by the maitre d, and you walk by somebody, and they're talking about you, and they don't know that you have uh, are are within earshot that that you could hear what they're saying about you. What would you like to have somebody else saying about you? Hmm. So that means that my husband and I are walking into 131 Main South Park because that's my favorite restaurant. And I'm probably dressed nice, smelling good, have my hair done. So I probably want them to say she looks gorgeous <laughs> and he's lucky to have her. <laughs> quote, in <end> quote. <laughs> Shedrick. You better be listening to this and paying attention. Take some notes. <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> well, one of the reasons we want to have you on here goes beyond that because you're a beautiful person inside and out and you have a wonderful story to tell. And, um, and it's an anything but typical story. So that's why we want to have uh, you share more about your journey, about your story, about your heartbeat as a person, but as a business owner as well, because you are a ripple maker out there and you're making great ripples. So uh, Ben, why don't you go ahead and take it? Cause I know you've got some questions you wanna ask of her. Yeah, yeah, I've got a couple. So, so buckle in <laughs> Vanessa, we're good. All right, let's start with a quick intro just so listeners give, have a basic idea. So Vanessa's the founder and chief resilience officer of Asphalus Advisors, which is a business resilience advisory firm. And so obviously we're going to dig into that. Um, and without me taking 15 minutes to give everybody the full background, I'll just say you've got a background in crisis and risk management at places such as Lowe's, Gulfstream Aerospace, United States Department of Homeland Security. And like I said, the, the list goes on of your experience. So one thing that really caught my eye that I want us to start at is in the about section on your LinkedIn, you talked about the perfect storm. And so before I, I really have you paint that picture, um, I'm going to read a, a quick piece of it where you talk about it being the perfect storm for a couple of reasons. One is that it would spark what would later become the foundation of your career or of your industry focus and business interest. So obviously it was a point in your life that sent you down a path that you may not have gone down prior. So I wanted to make sure we're hitting on that. And the second one is it gave you a deeper understanding and compassion and appreciation for victims and crises. So 
with that being said, let's start at the perfect storm. Talk to us a little bit about what it is and then we'll go from there. It was almost anything but perfect. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so I, I think about 12 to 13 years ago now, I was um, a lot younger and had a different mindset. Um, and so this perfect storm changed a lot for me, both personally and professionally. Um, but essentially, I was sitting in my car in the city of Atlanta. It was dark. It was a beautiful Friday spring day. And out of nowhere, um, it starts to rain. Uh, the wind speeds start to pick up outside and my car starts to shake back and forth while I'm sitting in the car. And adjacent to me outside of the window, there was a woman bear hugging a light pole and her legs were literally swaying in the wind. That's how strong the wind speeds were. And I, I heard this loud pounding noise and I didn't know what it was at the time, but it was hail the size of golf balls pounding on my vehicle. So I'm, I'm pretty scared and I thought, well, maybe I should just get out the car and run, but everything outside looked like it was dying. <laughs> so I didn't want to be there. <laughs> um, and so ultimately the windows in my car burst and my car rose off the ground and there were dumpsters, cars, and billboards flying towards my head in the middle of the air. And literally it was the first time in my life where I realized you are not in control. You cannot control this car. You can't control the coronavirus. You can't control if people vote, if they don't vote. You can't control if there's food in the grocery stores. You cannot control anything but you right now in this moment. And so what are you going to do to maintain your own peace and to make sure that you make it out of the situation alive? And so ironically, um, it translates well into my career because I often meet people that are overcoming an obstacle. And oftentimes they're not in control, whether it's cybersecurity or something else that has happened, they're not in control, but they have to deal with it. And that's how I was that night in the car. Ultimately that tornado, uh, it ended up killing one person. One person lost their, uh, lost their life, 50 people lost their homes and it destroyed everything from the east and west sides of the city. Businesses were impacted Facilities were closed for, for, for months. Um, skyscrapers were damaged. Um, and it ultimately taught me as well that just because it hasn't happened yet, whatever it is, doesn't mean that you should not be prepared for it. So that night I was not prepared for a tornado with wind speeds exceeding 135 miles per hour. In 2020, I wasn't prepared for a pandemic. But that doesn't mean that um, I shouldn't be ready when those things happen. Wow, that's really interesting. And so like you had alluded to in, in your bio, it, it led you down this career path. So you had this experience, uh, the, the terrifying experience in the vehicle, realizing that you're not in control. And talk to us about the, the next steps after that. How did that then take you down your, the career path you're on? Yeah, so ironically, at the time, I was studying a degree in Homeland Security and Emergency Management. I ultimately graduated to be the first female in the state of Georgia to obtain that degree in a Bachelor of Arts program. Um, and so that, that perfect storm really gave me tangible boots on the ground experience for what it's like to manage a crisis. Because oftentimes, in my industry, our customers want to know you know, what have you experienced? What have you gone through? 
And so if you've never been through a crisis, how is it that you can help a customer to manage one? You know, um, and, and that crisis, I think, helped to show that I am human too. Although I'm an industry expert and I've been doing crisis management for over 12 years, I didn't have a plan. <laughs> I didn't know who to call and I was not prepared. And so I can speak to a customer who's in that same situation and I can, um, I can um, align with them and help them to see, I get you, I know where you are, I know it's scary, I know you're frustrated, I know it feels like you're not going to make it out, but we're gonna get through this. Um, so that's, that's ultimately how it happened. So that led me to um, local government. I worked in the city of Atlanta, ultimately worked my way up to the Department of Homeland Security. Um, liked the government, but wanted to see a change of pace and transitioned into the private sector and then spent the bulk of my career in companies that had a retail, transportation, or aviation focus. And in all those environments, my, my entire career has been helping uh, leadership teams and organizations to build uh, crisis management and, and, and risk management programs to help them understand what their risks are and to reduce their vulnerabilities. And then number two, um, I'm the person that they call in to talk with leadership to ask the uncomfortable questions so that we can affect change. You're, you're on this career path with the experience of Department of Homeland Land Security, Lowe's, Gulfstream Aerospace. You're, you've got this corporate career going, right? After you left uh, Homeland Security, you have this, this career path with corporations and, and fantastic names, too. What prompted you to then start Asphalus instead of staying within um, the corporate parameters? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, it was a couple things. Um, one, it, it was knowing that um, there was more that I, that I could produce and there was more that I had inside of me and I needed an environment where I could be creative and where it was acceptable for me to um, really let Vanessa shine, right? And really pull out who, who are you? <laughs> and not just within this confined corporate, you know, structure. I always say in corporate, I borrowed the brand, but as a business owner, I create the brand. Yep. And so I needed to get out of that shell. Number one, number two, um, I have worked in environments. So in my industry, 82% of emergency managers are white males. And so as a um, black woman coming from a historically black college, walking into corporate America, I was always the only of the only of the only. So I always say there's three things that can work for me or against me, just depends on where I'm at. The only female, the only black person, and the only person under the age of 50. And in my career, I was getting tired of working for older white men who did not value me, who could not coach me, and who did not want to train me. And so that was a, a huge part of the reason why I decided to leave and start my own business was because of the internal culture within many organizations. And I know, Gary, you are a culture fanatic. <laughs> so that's ultimately it makes a huge difference, man. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> so, yeah, that's 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 ultimately what kind of gave me the drive to do it. Um, and then, you know, as a business owner, once you get in, it's like you can't get out. <laughs> Well, you're talking to two guys that have done it. <laughs> it just keeps falling. <laughs> you, you don't get out for better or for worse, right? <laughs> yep. 
You know, you said something that's like, I love this. And I think this would resonate with every entrepreneur out there or somebody that's got that kind of bubbling up inside them. But you said in the corporate world, I borrowed the brand. And as a business owner, I get to create the brand. And, you know, I may have uh, missed a word or two here, but hopefully that got the heartbeat of it. That's why we're recording this. So that way Vanessa doesn't get misquoted. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll go back to that for for the social media post. Um, That is really powerful. Uh, You know, where you get to do that and it's an honor to do it, but it's also risky to do it because there's a lot of risk that happens and you being a risk professional, which I just think is amazing because how many people are in risk positions that would never, never (laughs) dream of getting outside of the comfort zone of that nest and, uh, and doing that. So, you know, usually there's pain and you talked a, a little bit about some of the pain, but there's usually also more than just pain that will drive somebody to do it. They see something, they, they, they can't imagine not doing it. They call the non-existent into existence. So you've done that. You're continuing to do that. Um, talk to me about as being as buttoned up as you are. And believe me, people, this lady is buttoned up. We're in a, a, a mastermind group and they, they let me use that term because I, I bring down the IQ of the, the group, but uh, we're in a group together. And so I know how buttoned up she is. Um, and you, you've got plans and you've got contingency plans and all that kind of stuff. And yet, you know, now as a business owner, that's all fine and dandy and it's important, but there are also like some blind sides and, you know, that come at you and some, so I would like to hear your experience on some of the surprises that you've experienced. And I know this is asking a little bit of vulnerability here, but I would love to have you talk about some of the surprises that you've had to overcome and how you've been overcoming them. Yeah. Um, personally or professionally? Yeah, I'd say with with the, the business in particular. Got it. Okay. Okay. So I think that's a great question. Um, and I'll, you know, be honest with you. Um, our, our COVID-19 was before 2020. So in 2020, uh, China was hit with the coronavirus and then it, it spread across the entire globe. And every single business was impacted, whether it helped your business or whether it hindered your business, whether it shut you down, whether it sent all your employees home, everybody was in this crisis together and we all had to experience it at the same time. Well, my crisis was before all that and I was by myself. (laughs) So that's the first thing. I wasn't in it with anybody. Um, And so ultimately, um, my crisis in my business is I hired a uh, employee who turned out to be um, not good for our culture. And um, it ultimately cost us a client. Mm-hmm. And um, I had to do what I had to do, which was execute, you know, and commit to what we promised that we could deliver. And then I had to let go of that particular employee and it cost me a lot mm. and our business suffered. 
Um, we went over uh, 12 months with no revenue. Wow. I lost my peace. I lost my faith. I lost my confidence. And it's interesting because a lot of people would reach out and say, you know, you look like everything's fine. You're always speaking. You're always traveling. You're going to all these different events. Every time I see you, you're laughing and, and you're smiling. But what they didn't know was what was really going on. And I was at a place where I didn't know if I should continue in business. And so that really was, that. that is probably the hardest thing I've ever had to go through was seeing the thing that you've worked for, the thing that, that you believe in. And for me, I'm a woman of faith. So I believe that God told me to start this business um, because he's smarter than me. <laughs> and I just couldn't quite understand, you know, you gave me this baby and now it's not working. What do you want me to do with this? And I, I'm a subject matter expert. I'm not an expert in business, right? So I'm a student in business. I sit on the front row every day of the class. And um, that really almost broke me. Um, and so when, when COVID-19 came, what was great about that was I've experienced what a lot of people are going through right now. I've been there where you're lost, where you don't know if you're going to make it, where you're scared where you cry more than you smile, um, where the expenses exceed the income. <laughs> Period. <laughs> and um, I had to, number one, surround myself with people who believed in me more than I did because I didn't believe in myself anymore. And then number two, um, I had to partner with people who could help to hold me accountable for who I said I wanted to be. And I was able to build and maintain my community around me that helped to get me through that. And ultimately, um, we've been coming out of that um, through you know, the past couple of years, but it was definitely a, a, a struggle. I mean, it was a struggle, <laughs> you know, but I, I'm grateful for the opportunity now in hindsight because you can't just win off of success alone. You have to fail. You have to hit the ground. You have to bust your kneecap. You have to bleed in order for you to really know who you are. And, and that's what a business coach told me. He said, um, you're not a real CEO until your business goes through a crisis. Ooh. Because if crisis again. Yeah. You're not a real CEO until your business goes through a crisis. Because it's crisis situations that teach you as the leader who you are and how you lead and how you show up and how you manage your emotions, right? Everything starts with the top. And in my corporate experience, I didn't like the top. <laughs> so God was like, okay, well, you get to be the top. <laughs> it starts with you now. So that is... Um, that's digging deep, and that's that's something that has happened to me in our business. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that and being will, willing to be vulnerable with that because the reality is, especially with social media, we see everybody's show reels, and it sure looks better than our behind-the-scenes reel, doesn't it? But we're we're playing the tape every day of our behind-the-scenes reel. Yep. And, you know, we're sewing in tears, and you know as a business owner, you're having to sew – 
business development seeds. And a lot of times we water those seeds with our own tears that nobody else sees. Absolutely. So I, I want to go back to uh, something you had mentioned at, at the, the beginning of that, where you said everybody that saw you out didn't see anything wrong, right? There's you're smiling, you're laughing, you're going places. Um, obviously to a point of that, that's a facade, right? You're like, you're putting on the face to be able to go out in public, but at the same time, um, what at your core allowed you to maintain positivity through such a, uh, a deep and vulnerable struggle at, at that point in your career? That's a really good question. Um, you know, it's interesting. So one thing I, I don't like about Charlotte and maybe just networking in general is I feel like everybody comes into these meetings and they're like, oh, everything's great. Everything's right. fine. Yep. I just closed this. We just got this. We have this, this new location. Nobody talks about the struggle. Mm. Um, a, a really good friend of mine always says, I like the climax. I like everything before they get to that ultimate point, right? But it's the struggle that people really care about. It's how did you overcome? Um, I remember being in a business meeting one day and it was that same type of meeting. It was a, another mastermind group and everybody was talking about how great business was and mine sucked. I was just mad. <laughs> and there was somebody who sat across from me and his, his business seemed as though it was equally as depressing as mine at the time. <laughs> and, but his face and his demeanor um, in that moment, I thought that he, he could have been challenged with some other issues and I could, I could see him doing some things that could be detrimental to his health. And so in this meeting, it became my turn. And they said, well, what's going on with you? How is business? And in that moment, my spirit just said, just, just be honest and just tell the truth. And I said, okay. And I said, well, to be honest, guys, um, business is slow. We haven't had sales in three months. I'm scared. Um, our cash flow is depleting. And I just let them know line by line what's really going on. And I said, I don't know if you have an answer for me, but I, I just need you to know that everything's not okay. And it completely changed the tone of the room. Um, everybody who had previously shared their story began to share, oh, well, I also lost my largest client this week. And I'm like, why didn't you leave with that? <laughs> Well, it's because you, by leading by example, gave everybody else permission to be vulnerable. And until somebody stepped up and did that, everyone's going to put on the show that they want everyone else to view them through. Exactly. Exactly. And that gentleman that was sitting across from me that, that looked like he was really struggling, his entire tone changed. And he became vulnerable, but he also began to listen. And I think it was so important in that moment because, you know, if everybody around you is peachy clean and everything's fine and you're the only person that's bubbling up and you see a problem, I don't think that's helpful either. And so um, to answer your question, I don't know if, if I, um, I, I think I, I try to be me yeah. and I don't try to force things that are not there. If I'm not happy, you will know about it. <laughs> If I'm happy, 
You will know about it. Ask my husband. <laughs> I was just going to ask him, hey, Shedrick, are you listening to this? <laughs> um, I try to keep it real, you know, because it's, it's, it's life and things never go as planned. And I think in business, people want to see your authenticity. And I'll tell you, um, in, in, that, in that meeting, which I never expected this, it was a group of, so I was the only, once again, those, those three things, the only woman, the only black person, the only person under the age of 50. It was meeting probably of about 20, 25 people. And everybody in that room began praying and touching and agreeing and um, sending up positivity for everybody else's business. And so for me, it was amazing to see that in a business setting, because I don't typically see that. And, right. and I wasn't expecting that as an outcome. But whatever we discussed, it triggered something in those members. And they took a different approach in that meeting. And I will never forget that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think you nailed it with the word authenticity, right? So when you're at answering that question, that, that word is what I was feeling as you were talking, that you were willing to just be your authentic self. And that goes, that goes a long way because you can do that throughout anything, right? Positive times, negative times, anything, because you're just being true to yourself. Yep. So I think that's a great lesson for people listening. Try and, try and peel away a couple layers of the onion and, and let people see who you really are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, and you know, the other thing in that that you mentioned is there are moments where things are good. And, you know, in that, give thanks. And then when we're in times where it's not good, be honest about it and still give thanks. But um, you also talked about empathy that happened. It took vulnerability on your standpoint, but then the room showed empathy and it gave permission. And that is a, a mark of a really good leader too, I think, um, because there are highs and lows of life and they, they continue to roll in like the tide. So uh, thank you for sharing that. that. That was super powerful. We may actually come back to some of that too, but I know Ben's got some other things that he wants to take. <laughs> um, yeah, I wanna dive in a little bit more into what the business actually does. So, so let's just start with what you specialize in and then, then I wanna get into some actual real life stories of, of uh, working with some different clients that you have. Ooh, fun stuff. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, um, as Fallis Advisors is actually the Greek word for safe, secure, and sure. And we help organizations identify threats around their people, operations, infrastructure, and technology. And so, ultimately, we provide our customers with solutions to help them reduce reputational, financial, and operational losses. And we do that through our professional services and training, coaching, advisory, and consulting. And so to your point, we, we do specialize in crisis management, um, business continuity, and risk management. From a capabilities perspective, there's about four things that we do. Uh, number one, we help organizations to develop their infrastructure to reduce third-party supply chain risks. That's a... Um, that's a critical vulnerability piece for many organizations is the, the supply chain. Uh, number two, we help to equip people to know what to do, how to do it, why it's important um, in a crisis. 
whether it is you preparing for, responding to, or recovering from any aspect of disruption. And we help to strengthen uh, capabilities from a preparedness response and recovery perspective and embed them into the culture. So people have to own preparedness. You have to own recovery, right? You have to own how, how you're going to respond to COVID-19. And most um, people within organizations don't even know that, that the crisis management function exists, right? So, you know, how do you embed that so that you have a culture um, that is always um, uh, in a place where you're managing your, your resiliency and your ability for the organization to absorb the impact and bounce back? Mm-hmm. And then lastly, um, our primary reason for existence is to make sure that our customers are able to deliver their products and services following an uncontrolled loss. So whatever loss you experience, my job is to make sure you can get your products and services back out to your clients um, as quickly as possible. And the more you prepare on the front end, the more um, faster you can respond on the back end and the less time and cost that you have to endure as an organization. So, so walk us through that a little bit. And, and I, I like that you, you put the, uh, the emphasis on the preparation part of it versus being reactionary. So, so let's focus on that. A company comes to you and, and they, want, they want you to come in and, and help set these things up in place to, to make sure that they're preparing the right way. Take us through what that uh, shorter version of what that process looks like um, when, when a company approaches you for something like that. Yeah, so one of our customers was expanding and growing across multiple states. They were growing their employee base, and they were really unclear about some of their internal and external vulnerabilities that they should be aware of before they expand their operation. And so we decided to um, partner with them and provide a risk assessment of their organization and help them to measure um, their strategic, operational, financial um, risk categories across the organization. And ultimately, how, how does your um, organizational strategy tie into the risks that faces the company? And so we took them through this process of developing and building out their risk assessment to bring visibility to the risks within the organization. Um, and that looked like um, a four hour session with us and their leadership team and their board of directors we reviewed their strategy, their mission, and their vision. And then we had them go through a number of of exercises to identify gaps. Because we always say, you're the expert in your business. I'm the expert in crisis and risk management. So it's my job to ask the right questions so that I can help you to bring the answers to the table that you have. And so ultimately that produced an outcome where number one, they were able to increase their customer satisfaction because they learned things within their business that they hadn't seen before through that process. And so they tweaked some things and helped their own customers have greater satisfaction in what they delivered. Uh, Number two, it helped them to reduce their costs. So they had a chance to see from an operational perspective, we're spending money on a few things that are not returning the value that we thought. And how do we take this process and reduce the cost of things that we're spending money on? And then lastly, it increased the engagement with their board of directors. But now they have a standard process for how they're approaching their their board on a monthly and a quarterly basis. They're tracking what their risks and their vulnerabilities are. 
And then more importantly, they're having the conversation of what are we doing about it? So what gets measured gets done. So I'm all about, once we know what our risks and our threats are, we need a one page document and a dashboard to help us measure what we're, what we're going to, 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 to do about it. And then more importantly, what happens if we don't do it? Who gets in trouble? <laughs> so I want to dovetail into that uh, where, you know, um, who, who gets in trouble? Pain, pain, right? People respond and organizations respond to pain or threats of perceived pain. Like, I don't want to experience that pain. So you also mentioned supply chain risk, which is something that a lot of times, I don't know that a lot of people really thought about it prior to COVID, right? But now all of a sudden it's front and center on vulnerabilities on our own government, right? On pharmaceuticals and major infrastructure things, steel, blah, blah, blah. So um, talk to me about in this environment, in COVID in particular, where there's been a, a greater awareness of pain, because I don't know me if I'm wrong here, but I don't know that companies are going to enlist your help when, hey, everything's great. We're just making all kinds of money. There's no pain or there's no perceived pain. Oh, yeah, it might be one of those culture things like, oh, yeah, it's a good thing to have. Yeah, good thing. Well, but if they've experienced pain or they've seen pain in somebody else, a competitor or a friend that's running the company, talk to us about the pain you're seeing that's driving people to actually take this thing seriously um, now so that they can fortify and improve their businesses going forward besides just like surviving right now uh, or hey we're, we're tonning it because we're in a sector that's just killing it right now talk yeah. about that yeah, so I would say, um, number one, you are right. Uh, typically, organizations that experience disruption often are more prone to invest in their preparedness because they know what it's like. So if you run a transportation company, you're accustomed to things not going right. If you run a manufacturing company, you're accustomed to your supplies not getting here on time, et cetera, et cetera. Or you know, a lack of talent pool, right? That's a continuity of people issue. Those are things that, that we do. I would say right now in COVID, um, there's a few things, um, and I'll caveat this by saying they're stemming from the pandemic and they're, they're stemming from the civil unrest. So what we're seeing is number one, people are motivated because of fear. I think people, when you turn on your TV screen, it is just fear all over the TV screen right? Are we going to make it? Am I going to die? If I get on an airplane, will I live? Um, people are afraid. If I, you know, if I reopen the office, will the employees get sick? Will, you know, will we get a lawsuit? You know, how, how does that work? So number one, it's fear. Um, the second thing is, I would say at this point, it's exhaustion and, and people are burnt out. When I'm talking to customers, um, I've been encouraging some of them, you need to go on vacation. <laughs> and do, do not answer the phone for seven days. <laughs> but what I'm seeing is that they are exhausted. You go from one meeting to the next meeting. You don't have your notes. You haven't thought about why you're in the meeting. You're not prepared. Things keep changing at a moment's notice. And they're exhausted, right? We're in meetings for three reasons. We're there to think. We're there to plan and we're there to do something. 
they're having challenges just with being able to think. And in a crisis, you have to allow yourself, and just as a leader, the most critical of those three things is thinking. You have to give yourself time to think. And so many of them are not doing that. And so what happens when we don't think? What happens when we're exhausted, right? We make poor, poor decisions. Um, our work seems lazy. There's low productivity. So people are struggling with that. The third thing I'm seeing is compliance. So if we go back to the protests and the, the inequality that, that, or excuse me, the inequality that's happening in our society on every uh, dimension of diversity, it's, 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 it's largely about compliance. What do I have to do? So what do I have to do to make sure that our minority customers continue to buy from us? What do I have to do to make sure that my minority employees don't leave? Right? What do I have to do to make sure we don't get an EEOC violation? It's compliance driven. The second thing I'm seeing from a um, diversity perspective is that it's all about the cost. You know, um, if there is an allegation for your organization that can result in about forty to $100,000 just in cost, just an allegation, doesn't mean that you did it. It's just an allegation, right? So people want to minimize the costs that are associated with cultures that are not representing diversity, equity, and inclusion. So those are the four things that, that I'm seeing. Those are really good. Um, I'm just trying to think about, let, let's think about the companies that are feeling that stress that, um, you know, cash flows down, um, their vulnerability hasn't decreased, right? Um, we are in a, a tougher spot. We are still in a very litigious society that everybody, you know, the exhaustion and the fear, the things that you've talked about are weighing on us individually and then collectively, right? So um, if somebody is concerned about cost, but they are also concerned about doing the right thing and protecting themselves, not just to just check the box, hey, did you know, but they, they really do care. What can they do um, to help move the ball, you know, forward and protect themselves a little bit more, knowing that they're doing the right thing, but also being cost effective because a lot of the things when you talk about with your background with Gulfstream and other large organizations, you know, Lowe's, et cetera, there are huge budgets for that. Well, middle market companies or even smaller businesses, they still have vulnerability. You know, to your point, an allegation can cost you, it can take your, your company down. Yep. What are the things that a business owner listening to this could do in taking steps um, to help move it forward versus just head in the sand? Yeah, so are you referencing um, just crisis management in general or the conversations on diversity? Actually both, I'd like you to talk to both if you, if you would. Yeah, um, so first what I'll say from a pure crisis management perspective, um, if COVID-19 has taught us nothing else, um, every business is susceptible to crisis or disruption, 
and your employees, your board, your, your, your customers have an expectation that you are doing business the right way. And I believe you do business the right way or don't do it at all. So um, things will happen to your business and you as a leader need to have a plan that you have um, really sat through, discussed with your leadership team and put into execution before something else happens. So in my world of crisis management, it's the 80-20 rule. Crisis management is 80% communications, 20% strategy. You focus your time on where you get the highest output. So if 20% is strategy, spend 20% of your time working on the strategy. On our website, we have a five-step approach um, for how you can build your own crisis strategy. For us, we always start with analyze your environment, identify the risks that you have in the business, evaluate what your options are and what's feasible because you may have a whole lot of options, but to your point, if you're a middle market company and you're at about 100 employees or less, you may not have the same options as a company with 250,000 employees. So map out what's feasible and what actually makes sense to your business. Again, what, so what works for Lowe's will never work for Home Depot <laughs> from a crisis management perspective, right? So that's number three. Number four is you have to implement, right? Just like everything else, you set a strategy, you have to execute it. So who is doing what by when? And then lastly, you have to communicate and you should always be communicating throughout the entire crisis um, strategy. And so those would be the first five things I would tell you to do. Um, but I would tell you as well that no matter what size your business is, you need a crisis response plan. Um, I don't care if you have one employee, you still need a plan. What do you do if you get sick and you're in the hospital with COVID-19 and you are the person who, who delivers the work to the customer? What's the plan? And if that's not clearly written out, then that's a problem. What happens if your accounting firm goes out of business and they have all of your records for the past eight years and you get an audit? What's the plan for how we're gonna recover? What's the plan for how we're gonna meet that? So these are questions that you know, business owners are typically not asked. We are told to get your accountant, to get your attorney, but they are experts who manage disruption. That's the field that I'm in. And so you need to make sure that you have that bottom line. Um, when we talk about the diversity, equity, and inclusion work, um, that's loaded. <laughs> um, the first thing I'll say is, and I know Ben, you've, you've uh, seen this. I, I did a video uh, right after George Floyd was murdered titled, What Can You Do About Racism? And, and Go ahead. Every single person who's listening to this needs to go to your LinkedIn, and it's on YouTube also, I believe, right? Yes. And, and watch that video and listen to it. So I want to jump, jump in and interject that every single person that's listening needs to go do that. So sorry, continue on. <laughs> no problem. Um, so I did that video, uh, really it was my first time ever speaking out about racial inequality and the things that I've seen for over 30 years in America that I just have been accustomed to living with and just making it a part of my everyday life. Um, but it was important for me to say that to my industry um, because we're in a crisis. And like I mentioned before, 82% of emergency managers are white males. And so we're in the middle of a crisis and our job is to help employees and communities to respond and recover from, from disruption. 
but yet our workforce and the industry doesn't reflect the people who we serve. And so how do you make equitable decisions when there's a lack of equity and diversity at the table? Right? I mean, that, that just, that's, that's almost like, it just makes no sense. Um, so in terms of what can people do to move the needle, um, number one, let me start by saying, when I share about my experiences in diversity, equity, and inclusion, I like to caveat by saying, I may disrupt what you think. I may challenge what you've been taught. Um, and you may not like me <laughs> after you finish hearing me explain what I think. And I'm okay with that. Because in order for change to happen, you have to be uncomfortable. And if you're comfortable, you won't change. So when my business went through hell, I had to go through uncomfortableness in order for me to change as a business owner, right? So hear me when I say that, it's, it doesn't feel good, but it's necessary for us to have these conversations. Um, from my perspective, there's a few things that companies and leaders need to be paying attention to um, because if you don't, you could be further perpetuating the idea of white supremacy in our country and around the globe and in your business practices. And so number one, um, if you are in an organization where your entire leadership team does not have one black person at all, or you have the token black person who's not empowered to speak up when things are wrong, you need to look deeper. There's something going on and that's a problem. Um, if you work with an organization and your entire board of directors does not have a single black person on the board, that's a problem. Black women make up less than 2% of corporate boards. So, so we have a pipeline issue globally, but we also have an issue with representation at the leadership team and the board level in many companies across America. Out of the, the Fortune 500s, I think there's three CEOs, three out of 500, three. That's just unacceptable and it's 2020. Yep. <laughs> These companies have been in business longer than my grandmother, <laughs> right? Um, the third thing is on your social media accounts and in your marketing materials, if you don't have representation in those materials, that's a problem. Whenever I meet a new company or a new person, I go to their website I follow them on social media and I scroll just to see how long will it take me to find somebody that, that looks like me. And I don't lump black people into people of color because I'm not a person of color. I'm a black woman. And I have specific issues that the United States of America has participated in. And my issues are different than people of color. And so there are specific things that affect the black community much differently than any other community. And whether people want to see it or not, that's not what I'm here for, right? But the bottom line is, is that those things exist. And so you have to have representation. If I look at your website and there's no one who looks like me, I will not be applying for a job and I do not want to partner with you on anything. Um, number four, um, if you do not publish, and, and these are for you know, some of the, the private companies, if you don't publish your employee demographics in your sustainability reports, that's an indicator because it's not like you don't know. I hear people all the time say, well, I don't know what our numbers are. Yes, you do. They're just that poor that you don't want to share with other people. 
But until we can acknowledge that there's a problem, things will not change. And so you need to be transparent about what your true numbers are. If you have, so, so number one, if you have someone who represents diversity and inclusion as an officer in an organization, that's, that's something key to make sure that you focus on because many organizations don't even have that as a function. But number two, if you do have a diversity and inclusion officer and they do not have profit and loss responsibility, then there's no point for them to exist. If you're gonna put somebody in charge of diversity, equity, and inclusion with no budget and with no resources, then what do you really expect them to do? And then also, don't just pick the one black person or the one Hispanic person or a gay male to, to be in that role because they check the box. That's not okay, right? Um, if you do not have a supplier diversity program in your business, I don't care what size business you are, if you are not measuring and tracking how you buy from diverse suppliers, that is a problem. So what I'm finding from a lot of corporations is they have 20% set aside for supplier diversity. 18% of that spend, specifically the banks, both of them, specifically 18% goes to white woman-owned businesses. In my mind, as a black female, a white woman-owned business is not a minority. <laughs> you are a part of the majority, but yet 18% of their corporate spend goes to white women-owned businesses. So that leaves 2% for everybody else. And typically in the black community, corporations hire us to cut the grass, to, to build a building, or to take out the trash. You don't hire us for the professional services. So if you're gonna bring in Deloitte, PwC, Ernst & Young, Accenture, I don't care who it is, you need to hold your partners accountable and ensure that they hire minority businesses, Black-owned businesses, to do the professional services work. And so does your company. Because if I'm good enough to buy your products and services, but I'm not good enough for you to buy from me, then why should I be your customer? So that's a huge problem I see, and it, it, it's been exacerbated now that I'm a business owner myself. Um, if you do not have a diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy that has clearly defined objectives, um, a value proposition, and how you measure success, then you're not on the path to anywhere because you don't even have a strategy, right? Just like crisis management, 80% communications, 20% strategy. Build a strategy. Where do you want to go? How do you define diversity and inclusion for your, for your organization? And then lastly, um, who gets fired when this doesn't happen? That's the question nobody wants to talk about. So we say diversity, equity, and inclusion is important. Great. Who gets fired? The CEO or the COO? And by what day? So I used to work for Delta Airlines, Gulfstream Aerospace Corporation. We put birds in the sky private planes, commercial jets, you name it. If you can put a plane in the sky, you can solve for racism. <laughs> that is a boatload of information and really good. And one of the things, you know, you're talking about big, big systemic challenges that go back to the beginning of time in many regards, right? I mean, and, and that transcend the United States of America, they really go back to Cain and Abel almost. 
Um, and one of the things that you've said in, in listening to your video, which I do recommend it as well, and that was a raw video, man. I mean, that was right on the heels of George Floyd, right? Um, and I remember doing a pause for a few days and I called Colin Pinckney, who's a good friend of mine. And I said, man, I don't know what to do about this. You know, help me, you know, like how, like I'm just wrestling and he's a very good friend, but I'm a white guy. He's a black guy. You know, I need your perspective, Colin. And some of the things that, and we had him on this podcast too, which is really cool because we're going to ask you the same questions we asked him. <laughs> But one of the things that I took away was, can we just listen and ask the question of one another? And it's okay if we don't have an answer and we are not necessarily, you're not asking for us to be the white saviors and go solve the problem. You need to be heard. Everybody needs to be heard, but you need to be heard and respected. And then what do we do about it? You know, individually, we can each have little ripple effects, but it, it's going to take a bunch, right? So um, I know, Ben, you've got a couple questions that you want to tee up in that. Yeah, I, I'll build off of, of what you had just said, Gary, and I'll, I'll skip around a little bit and jump into this one first. So one of the things that, that Gary just hit on is the privilege, right? Especially white male privilege, right? It's obviously the, the most prevalent but people that are in positions of privilege in any type of scenario ha is in the best position to begin true change yep. so from your perspective what are actions that that we need to see from people that that are in positions of privilege in our country that can help benefit us from moving forward in the right direction i guess i'll ask it that way yeah so I would definitely say all of the eight things that I just laid out right. are actionable things that people, individuals have to take, and that includes white people. White people are advocates. And let me, you know, let me caveat this. All white people are not racist people. I think, I hope we all know that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's important to be stated. Um, those eight things that I just laid out are, are, are very clear, specific things that people need to do as individuals. Yep. But I also think that we need active participation. So people you know, have been talking a lot about allyship and how do you serve as an ally to minorities, to um, your black colleagues, et cetera, right? And to the other dimensions of diversity that we haven't even touched on, right? We need people to become an active ally which means become an active participant in the conversation. Um, and, and be active, right? We know what that means, be active. Don't just sit back and observe, be active. So Serena Williams' husband gave up his seat on a board because it was full of white men. And he said, the next person you hire to fill my seat should be a black male. That's an active ally. He, he did an active step. I know I have privilege. I don't need to be on this board. He, doesn't, he probably doesn't even need the money, right? He gave up his seat so that another person could fill that role because they need the diversity, right? 
Um, number two, I think it's also important that when you see something, that you say something. So it is much easier for me to connect with a person who looks like Vanessa within my community because we have things in common and they see me potentially as an ally. It's much harder for me to reach across the aisle to connect with a person who looks like Gary or who looks like Ben. So we need white males who have privilege when you see something to say something. The number one thing I hear from white men is that the reason why they don't speak up is because of fear of being disowned by their own community. Hmm. And that sucks. And I'm, I'm, I don't know what that feels like in terms of black people not accepting me, right? But we've got to get to a place where we're not concerned about right. that and we're speaking up. Yep. And I think the last thing that um, folks with privilege should probably understand is that a level of trust has been broken. It's broken. And so in, 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 in any relationship, there's a process to rebuild trust. And I think it's important that that's clear in every relationship that you have. People may not trust you. People may, may look at you and say, he looked like the guy on TV. <laughs> Right? You have to understand that. And I think that's just important in terms of just building relationships and human dynamics. Yeah. Well, the analogy of the relationship is, is I think, pretty relevant, right? Because when trust is broken in a relationship, it takes a very long time to rebuild. And that's if it even rebuilds at all. And now when we're talking about entire countries, or, or entire societies building this, um, there's, there's going to be an, a significant amount of work that needs to be put into it for, for any meaningful change to last, right? It's, it's one thing for people to um, get motivated in the short term and, and do things for a couple of weeks after, after something tragic happens. But what we've seen quite often in the past is that'll happen and there'll be a big buildup and then everyone just reverts back to life three weeks ago. Um, so when we're talking more from a society standpoint, not necessarily from a business standpoint, um, what are some of those things that, that you think uh, will be sticking as we move forward? What, what can we do to make sure that it's not just people getting motivated whenever something tragic happens and then just going back to their comfortable lives. Yeah, and, and from a society pers perspective. Um, yeah. Well, number one, to your point about relationships, relationships are reciprocal, right? Yep. So although trust has been broken, it takes two to tango. And so Vanessa also has to be an active participant in that relationship. It's not just on Ben and it's not just on Gary. Now, um, psychologically, Vanessa may think, well, they should do this and they should do that. But at the end of the day, relationships don't work with just one person. Right. And so I think it's important for all people to consider and understand your role in the relationship. Um, secondly, I think what's important so that it doesn't lose its focus is that you continue to talk about it and bring it up. So for example, I had a customer who reached out to me after George Floyd was murdered and they asked me to review a statement from their CEO. And I read the statement and there were things that I called to their attention that I didn't understand. 
And so one, for example, was we had a line that said, we're going to stand against racism. And I said, well, what does that mean? Like, do I stand up? Do I sit down? Do I lay on the table? What do I do when I see someone or hear someone saying things that are, that, that, that do not align to our culture and our value and um, that go against what we're trying to accomplish from an equity and inclusion perspective. And he didn't have an answer for me. And that's okay, because sometimes we don't have an answer. But, I, but my, my perspective is when you ask the right question, you create the awareness. And so it helped him to go back to their leadership team and say, how do we, what does this mean to stand against racism? You know, how do I hold you accountable as my employer how do I measure your progress? So there's so many companies and there's, there's an organization who's actually made a list of all the companies who pledged to do something. So I can't wait to see what that looks like towards December, 2020. But for all the companies who decided to put out a statement, to post something on, 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 on social media or to, to have a town hall, then the question for society to take back to your employer, because our employers have further perpetuated white supremacy. Our, our government knows how to marginalize people of color. That's what America gets the t-shirt the for. Our corporate businesses have further perpetuated that. And so what society needs to go back, to go back and do are ask the questions, where are we with that statement? Where's the strategy? What are we measuring? Who's coming in to help us do it? And more importantly, how much money are you committing to diversity and inclusion? I cannot tell you how many companies come to us with, I have $500. You're a $500 million company with $500? Let's just do the math on that, <laughs> right? So you have to go back and ask the questions. That's the bottom line, right? It's, it's no different than your kids. If they come home with homework, and you don't check the homework, how do you know if they're actually getting the homework done? You have to become an investigator and find out the truth. In my field in emergency management and risk, it's my job to find the truth. You may tell me I have a plan or I have a risk assessment or we've done a cyber response drill, that's fine. But for me, I'm going to go find the documentation. What are the policies, the procedures, and more importantly, what are the lived practices that happen inside that organization every single day? And then who's holding people accountable? And not just the person who's ultimately accountable for the program, but, but you as a colleague, right? How do you hold people accountable when they say or do things that do not align to what the commitment was? And so what I've told my colleagues who look like me is black people have to get to a place where we're willing to lose our job because I'm just not going to sit in an environment that doesn't put me first and who doesn't know that black lives matter. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think from, from my perspective anyway, I think that's a, a perfect um, spot for us to wrap this conversation up because you you hit on so many um, tangible things, right? I mean, you listed off eight things, and earlier when we were talking about crisis management, you listed off five, right? So you you did an amazing job of of packing in 
things that people can take away from this conversation. So I, I greatly appreciate that. So before we sign off, is there any, anything else that you want to, uh, uh, any, any last message, anything else you want to say before we sum this up? Um, I would say that um, this has definitely been an amazing conversation. So thank you, Gary and Ben, for allowing me to join the podcast. The last time I watched was when uh, Jenny Bucolt was on, and she's our marketing partner. I love her to death. So thank you so much. Um, and next, if there's anybody who's listening who wants to learn more, um, you can definitely feel free to reach out to me on our website, uh, www.asfalasadvisors.com and on social media at Asfalas Advisors or at Vanessa V. Matthews with one T. Perfect. And we'll put links to all that in the show notes as well. And look her up on LinkedIn, people. Um, we probably have more conversations to have too because uh, we just hit the tip of the iceberg on this. Yeah. Vanessa, thank you for being who you are. Um, I love the fact that, you know, your unbridled enthusiasm and, and uh, just your personality always shines and lights up the room. So thank you. And thanks for uh, being willing to be on this podcast with us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Yep. Thank you.